this is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. This episode of Farm Tank is brought to you by AgSwag. AgSwag focuses on returning an ROI when it comes to corporate swag and client gifting to really take your business to the next level. AgSwag offers creative ways to build a winning culture in your business, smart strategies to lower customer acquisition costs, and a true vision to help your business improve customer retention rates. I've used AgSwag to help build the culture at Farm Tank, design logos, design t-shirts for special events, and really come up with a customer retention program to really start building brand ambassadors for my business. My theory is I can work with sweatshirts.com out of China that knows nothing about my business or agriculture itself, or I can use AgSwag, who are boots on the ground, submerged in agriculture every day, talking to farmers. I really use them as a sounding board when it comes to making decisions about corporate swag and client gifting. I know they're working with a lot of big companies such as Crop Risk Services at the moment, CGB, Lathrop and Gage, and they're even working with uh, the local farm to help them with employee retention and uh, customer retention problems when it comes to buying grain, renting ground. Uh, they're even expanded out into some construction businesses. I know they're working a lot with real estate companies. They also have a CEO challenge out there right now as well. And you can contact me about that and I'd be happy to send it your way. But it's uh, seven secret questions to challenge every CEO. And I know they haven't got any CEOs to actually get all seven questions right. So it might be a good challenge just for you to try if you want to do Ag Swag or not. Be sure to give Ag Swag a call at 816-221-SWAG. They're always the go-to creative resource for swag and unique client gifting ideas. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sam Parr. Sam has basically been an entrepreneur his whole life. Sam started his first company in 2009 while still in college called Moonshine Online. He then went on to work for American Pickers for 18 months, soon after opening his second business in Nashville called Southern Sam's. After that, he co-founded Bunk SF, which is a roommate matching website. Now, Sam is currently the co-founder and CEO at The Hustle, as well as the owner at The Anti-MBA. With that, I'd like to welcome Sam to the show. Thank you. What's going on, man? Nothing much. It's a pleasure having you on and super excited. I know we've been trying to connect on this for a little bit now, but um, let's just start the podcast off by you telling our listeners a little bit how we met and the reason we're, we're on this podcast today. Yeah, so we met, we were at, um, uh, I forget the name of the conference. It was hosted by Design uh, Pickle. PickleCon. Um, Pickle, yeah, I, I, how could I forget that? PickleCon. I, yeah, I, I was there speaking. So uh, I own this company called The Hustle. It's a, it's, it's, it's a newsletter business, but we're trying to become something much larger than that. But I saw you and your dad, and I saw you guys, you guys stuck out for two reasons. One, I live in San Francisco, and I've lived out here for almost 10 years now, but I'm from Missouri, and I lived in Tennessee as well, and I could tell that you guys were from those, that neck of the woods or that part of the country as well because of the way you were dressing, and I could hear a little bit of twang in your voice. So I was like, oh, okay, so I, I don't <laughs> meet a lot of those people at tech conferences, and that's kind of what I'm used to, and that's my route. So I started talking to you guys, and then you told me about uh, you and your dad's business, which is, uh, you know, the new newsletter empire. And I was like, that blew my mind. And that's kind of how we got going. Yep, for sure. Yeah, we definitely, uh, hit it off and glad to meet you. You're actually one of the main reasons we ended up going out there. We, uh, Oh, that's awesome. Signed up for news. You're, uh, the hustle and we get it every day. And I was like, dad, this guy's like speaking out here. We should go out there and he dove into it a little more, and he's like, "Yeah, let's do it. Let's check it out." I so. should, uh, I should, I'm gonna send this to Russ, the organizer, and tell him to give me like a a 20% affiliate. You need some revenue commit. share on your tickets. <laughs> yeah. What about uh, 
moving aside from how we met, let's uh, let's move into a little bit about your background, where you grew up, high school. You just told us you were from the Midwest. First real yeah, job, startup. Up. Yeah, I grew up in Missouri, in St. Louis, um, in South City, St. Louis. And then uh, my father started, like, basically just a fruit stand that ended up becoming a produce brokerage site that was kind of cool. And uh, it kind of taught me about entrepreneurship. And then from there, I went to college at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. I went there for two reasons. The first reason was because I got an athletic scholarship. So I used to be a really good 400-meter runner, and they had a Division I program, and I got a scholarship too. And the second reason was because I wanted to be like Ari Gold in the TV show Entourage, and Belmont (laughs) had a music business program. And I was like, oh, I could do that. Um, And so that's why I went there. But when I was there, like my second or third year, I started, I had always like made money um, selling shit online, but I started like really getting into it. And I'm like, man, I can make a living doing all types of stuff. And so I met this guy named Mike Wolf. That's the main guy on the TV show, American Pickers. And I just met him on the street. Like he was walking on the street and I just walked up to him and asked for a photo. And then I just started talking to him. And eventually in the conversation, he told me that he was opening up a store in Nashville. And I asked if I could work there and kind of help him set it up. And he allowed me to and said, yeah, and hired me. And from there, I um, learned that, like, this whole thing of making money on the Internet, like, I can actually be a real-life job. Like, Mike Wolf, the American Pickers didn't make their money online, but, like, I learned that this guy who was just kind of selling stuff like I did, he just did it at, like, a really large scale, and that can, like, make a killing. And I kind of was inspired to take my entrepreneurial stuff a little bit more seriously, even though I'd seen my father do it, I kind of saw this guy do it, and... Uh, it kind of like hit me in the head that I should be doing this. And so the first, I, yeah, I started this thing where I was, had an online liquor store. Um, but then I started uh, a hot dog stand called Southern Sam's. And I did that outside of the American Picker store and that did well. But it was like, you know, 100 degrees, sometimes 105 degrees in Nashville. And I was like, this is really hard work. What else is there? What else is there out there? And so that's when I really, really, got into the internet and I just kind of Googled like where in or where in America do like the internet companies, like where are they? Like, and I had kind of heard of Silicon Valley, but I didn't know what Silicon Valley was. I didn't know. I heard, I had never been West of Colorado, but I had heard like this thing. I had heard San Francisco and I'd seen it on TV, but like, I honestly didn't know what the difference between San Francisco and LA was and all that. And I just kind of started Googling and I was like, screw it. I'm going to go out there and try to make it. And so my senior year of school, I left a little bit early and moved out here and started some companies. And um, I'm on my second or third one. And um, that's, uh, that's where we are now with the hustle. Let's, uh, let's talk a little more about the um, Moonshine Online. You kind of skipped over it a little <laughs> bit. You just said it was a liquor, well, uh, liquor store. It's a pretty cool story. Yeah, it's a cool story. I think that, like, Anyone who has ever made money on, by themselves has, like, always done things that were, like, we're not sure if this is legal or not legal, but let's try it. And that was kind of like that version. But basically, I didn't realize it. But looking back, I, I definitely wasn't following the rules, and that's why I shut it down. But there was this uh, – I had read about um, – this is, like, right when – remember that TV – or it might even still be on, Moonshiners? Remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like that, that had gotten popular and I had read a little bit about it and there was a new law that was enacted in a handful of states that basically said that small time distillers could make whiskey without having to buy like a two or three or $400,000 license. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. That's kind of like craft beer. Like, and that has like a huge following in some cultures. And I, I, because I worked at American Pickers, I knew that American culture was quite like, this idea of Americana was very, very popular outside of the South where I lived at the time. And so I just created this website called Moonshine Online. And what I would do is I would kind of work a deal with the liquor stores and I would resell. uh, It wasn't moonshine means illegal whiskey. It wasn't actually illegal whiskey. It was perfectly legal, but it was like in a Mason jar and it was clear. Mm -hmm. And I would just sell that online. And like, (laughs) it was pretty funny, like two or three weeks in, I had, this is, I, I had, I had just gotten an iPhone, I believe, and I had PayPal installed on my phone and I'd be in finance class and it would be a 45 minute class. And by the end of the class, I would have a thousand dollars in PayPal. 
And I'd be like, Jeez. oh, my God, this thing is this is awesome. <laughs> and so it started making good money early on. But like I said, I, I think I definitely – I was like – kind of falling through some loopholes that allowed me to do it. And then I started talking to lawyers and they're like, yeah, you're going to have to do in order for to do this thing in a big way, you got to do, get this done, this done, this done. And I didn't feel like doing all that. So I ended up just shutting it down. Were you, uh, were you doing this while you were working at American Pickers or was this before? Um, I was doing it. I started it while working there and then that was paying the bills. And I, so I didn't need a job anymore. Well, what was it like working at American Pickers? I mean, it was that's a pretty awesome. cool so deal. Guy, it was awesome. So, it. like, when I worked there, we were, like, the second – or I, I think we were, like, the second most popular show on cable, like, a lot of nights. Um, we were number two next to Pawn Stars. And this guy, Mike, he was, like, a superstar. Like, I remember – first of all, when I saw him, I was, like, starstruck. And then he let me work there. And I, it was, like, the coolest thing ever. I was only 20 or 21. And – we would be there and like famous people, like, first of all, they're, the store is small. It was probably only 4,000 or three, maybe, maybe 3,000 square feet, maybe 4,000 square feet. It, it was really small. Um, but people would wait in line for like an hour just to come in and see it. And there'd literally be a line of like, it could have been a thousand people there on a weekend in line. And so we, and so there'd be days where we would sell like 30 grand, worth of t-shirts and when I worked there that kind of I it really taught me like how like like the the scale that you can make things that kind of seem small like Mike was out there on the road buying and selling all types of stuff but I, I don't I don't know firsthand but if I had a guess I wouldn't be surprised if he made 10 or 20 million dollars a year just selling mugs and t-shirts um I mean, it, it was really cool to see that, like, and be, like, I was just, like, I was the low, the low guy in the totem pole. It's not like I, like, ever made any decisions or got to see anything um, behind the scenes, really. But I, 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 I kind of learned, like, how the business worked, and it was, that was amazing. It, it really taught me what it meant. And, you know, Mike owns, I, he, I remember he was always telling us about these buildings that he was buying. He was always buying different buildings. And, my company is called The Hustle, but, like, I really figured out what that meant when I was with him because he hustled. He owned um, all types of real estate. He owned a bike shop. He owned two or three different stores. He owned the whole American Pickers thing. Like, he was the producer, so he got paid on that, too. So it was really cool to, like, see, like, what it means to be this truly, like, self-made type of guy who, I mean, he was the American dream, Mike was. He came from a a single family home. And it was just awesome just to see like, look, whatever you want, you can actually go and make and do. And, th and that was really inspiring. Uh, particularly when I was only 20 years old to like see what that was like. What was, what was like the best business lesson he taught you while working there that you still use today and hope you be as successful as you've been? Well, so I think one thing that was interesting was like Mike Wolf, Mike Wolf is a, a, a cool ass dude and like all these celebrities like him and he was cool. But at the end of the day, the people who came to our store were like low income people from like Alabama and the South. And, and I identify with this, these groups of people. Um, but they like are the opposite of like, of like, like they're, they're, these aren't the guys who now would be buying like all the fancy, like direct to consumer startup stuff. Like they weren't like trendy. They were just like normal people. And he did a really good job of like, uh, not like looking down, like a lot of people were like, all right, we want to create this luxury product that reaches this thing and this thing. When the majority of Americans, the majority of people just want really simple stuff. And when, when we lived in Nashville, a lot of like these bougie people would be like, Hey, you guys should consider like making this or making that and selling this. And it would cost like a grand. Uh, and we could have made a lot of money that way. But Mike did a really good job of catering to his audience who were normal people. Um, and not like, like thinking that he was too good for that. And I thought, and then that was really inspiring because particularly in Silicon Valley, I see a lot of people who like dream, like I want to create this like AI company that does this and does that. And like, it really only appeals to like super high income people who live in major cities and not like just millions, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of Americans. And Mike did a really good job of understanding who he was building his products for. And, and that was really inspiring to me was like, look, like the majority of Americans just want to work a good, 
stable job and they want to have a little bit of money on the weekends to have fun. And I, I really took that to heart when I learned that because for me, it was always like, well, I want to like, you know, you think of like, if you want to like buy a Ferrari, then you have to make all this money. And when you make all this money, you start thinking like, all right, well, how can I cater to the people who buy Ferraris or how can I cater to this higher end group of people? When it's like, man, you could, you could play both sides. You can like, you personally can live this particular type of life, but you can make a good business by catering to average normal people because that's the majority of America. And anyway, yeah. that's kind of long winded, but that, that's what I learned about them. And, and, and I think yeah. that there's a lot, there, there's a lot of great stuff uh, uh, from that. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of how we became as successful as we are. I mean, we kind of look at it as your target market can be 80 to 90% of the world or it can be the top 1%. I think there's a lot more room to make money in that 80, 90% of just middle-class normal people than um, yeah, and that look, top and 1%. You could, like, like you and your father, who I've gotten to know a little bit, like you guys – are not normal income earning people like you guys kill it. Right. But you could still be like normal folks who, who play, you could like, like all this fancy shit that we have to offer, but you could also like, you understand like what motivates like um, most people. And I think that that's really yeah. important. You have to stay in, you have to stay in touch. And I think that that's a, uh, that's really, it's really, but it's really easy to lose track of that because you think, well, I'm earning this much or I like, you know, it's really important to me that I like optimize for my sleep and that I get the right amount of vitamins and do all this stuff. And it's like, man, most people just want to like have healthy children and they want to like play softball on the weekends and they want to like watch good TV at night. Like you got to like really stay in touch with, with that. And it's really easy mm-hmm. to lose touch if you start like even just doing okay uh, in terms of building, a, uh, you know, like revenue or income. Yeah. And I think what helps us a lot too is, We've been there, and we've been at the bottom, and it's no fun. And we uh, had it gridded out there for three or four years and really put in a lot of hard work. And now we're grateful to be as successful as we are. But um, we always remember where we came from, and I think that definitely plays a role in treating people how they should be treated and not looking down on anyone. But um, Yes, and, and I remember that being something I learned from Mike, particularly in Nashville, because Nashville was like seeing this huge um, – like loads of – like people from LA and New York were moving to Nashville when I lived there. And like, they wanted to change the culture of like, okay, like we're going to, we want to have more high end boutiques. So we want to do this. and want to do that. And a lot of the people, the clientele who came to Nashville were just normal people from surrounding parts of Tennessee and things like that. And they're like, no man, this is like, this is our weekend getaway. This is fun. We don't want this fancy stuff. And I think that it was really cool that he didn't, uh, kind of give into that, and uh, and that's I, I really learned it was important. You got to know who you're who you're marketing to. For sure. Speaking of Nashville, tell me um, a little bit about your second business, Southern Sam's. I know your slogan was "Wieners as big as a baby's arm." What's <laughs> yeah? Uh, what's all that about? Well, so <clears throat> that was the same thing. So, like I said, there'd be a there'd be a line of a thousand people outside of Nashville, uh, this store, and this all kind of ties back. The store next to us sold like gourmet mush, uh, gourmet um, marshmallows, like $8 for a marshmallow. It's like a weird idea. It's like, but it's like very few, like, but the people in line, they're like, I just want like a Diet Coke and like M&M's. I don't want like gourmet soda and gourmet marshmallows. Like I just want like a bag of chips and normal stuff. And so I was like, well, this doesn't exist here. I'm just going to do it. And so I, the only thing that I could afford at the time was a hot dog stand. So I started a hot dog stand uh, outside of the store, basically. And then I kind of expanded it. So I was like the official vendor for uh, a lot of the concerts, like the summertime um, city concerts, as well as I would work the bars at night. So I would have my carts outside of the bars and basically drunk college kids would come and uh, uh, give me 10 bucks and get for, for a meal. And uh, that was awesome. It was great. I think I started the business with $500. And on a good night, I could make a grand. On a bad night I w- or a bad day, I would make a hundred dollars in profit. On a good day, I could make a grand. Yeah, that's pretty crazy to think about when you're just uh, selling wieners, selling hot dogs <laughs> on the side well, of the road. Well, yeah, I mean, think about it. Let's see. I'll do the math right now. Let's say um, at night I would charge six dollars for one plus a soda. That would be uh, uh, eight dollars, and most of the time they would give me a tip. So I'd only need to sell. Um, I, to make a thousand dollars in revenue, I'd only need to do a, a hundred transactions. And if there's 
you know, 10,000 people at a, let's say 5,000 people at a concert, it's not too hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And some of those guys, even like um, in Chicago and New York, when my dad used to work there, he said some of those hot dog guys would just make a killing and no one would even know it. They're pushing yeah, it's cool. Like, every day. We have, there's a guy down the street from where my office is in San Francisco, and he told me that he, he does about $800,000 in revenue. And he probably goes home at three hundred thousand. I believe it. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could do good. What about? Um, let's talk about maybe your, your first like real startup company, um, Bunk SF. How I read it changed your life. How can you explain? Yeah, so how? like I um I so I was twenty one or twenty two. I was a senior in school, and I was like making money through the hot dog thing and through the liquor store. And I was like, screw it, I want to go big. And I had heard about this company. I had heard about this company that was only two or three years old at the time. And at the time, it was called Air Bed and Breakfast. Now it's called Airbnb. But I saw this idea, and I was like, that's kind of a cool idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there and, and try to work for them. And I interviewed there, and there, I basically cold emailed the CEO, Brian Chesky. Or no, at the time, it was Joe Gebbia, one of the founders. And I was like, hey, man, uh, I like found your email doing this thing or that thing. I think if you found potential uh, like hosts, like people who will put their apartment on Airbnb, you could find their emails this way and cold email all of them. I bet you you could increase your inventory by this much and make this much more money. And he was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Um, are you, do you live in San Francisco? If yes, come interview on Monday. And this was like on a Thursday. I was like, all right, yeah, I live here. I, and I didn't. And so I just booked a flight and I flew out there. And I interviewed, and they offered me a job, and I ended up not even working there. But I just said, you know, screw it. This San Francisco thing's awesome. Thanks for taking the time, but I'm actually gonna kind of gonna do my own thing. And I met, a, and I so I packed up my bags and I moved out here. And I only I didn't own anything, so it was easy, and I was young. And I met uh, a guy named John Havel, and he uh, I met him because I stayed at his place on Airbnb because he had the cheapest apartment in the whole city it was fifty dollars for one night and i started talking to him and he was like yeah i just quit my job a few months ago to start this one thing this little roommate matching app and i go that's great can i work for you uh because i'd never met anyone who was my age who was starting a business and he's like yeah let's do it and so i started working for him and eventually i got promoted to be a co-founder and we grew that and it it it, it, it was not a good business like we were making enough to survive we were making like thousands of dollars a month to like pay ourselves, but we sold it for a very small amount of money to a bigger company. And that kind of taught me a, a, a whole bunch. Um, and then after selling it, I worked at the company for about a year and then left to start uh, my current business. But uh, yeah, it was like, you know, it's funny that bunk it eventually turned into an iPhone app that looked just like Tinder, but for roommates. And we absolutely should have made it to help people date instead of <laughs> help people find a roommate. So it would have been far more I lucrative. I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. you would have made a killing probably. 100%. Um, What's, uh, was that for like college roommates or just roommates in general? Well, so what we did was in San Francisco, it's crazy, the real estate market. But it's probably like this in Chicago and New York. But basically, these cities where loads of young people who are moving to, there's a – a lot of like two and three and four bedroom apartments, but for someone like me or the thousands of other people who move here, they don't they don't need a two or three bedroom apartment because they're by them by themselves. But a one bedroom apartment is is too expensive. And so what we did was we created a way, or the goal was to create a way that people could team up. So people who had similar preferences could team up to go and rent a three or four bedroom. Um, so like three people could spend a grand a piece and go and get this $3,000 must three bedroom. And so we are, we tried to create an app that did that. Um, and it did okay. It, a lot of like hundreds of thousands of people ended up downloading it. Um, but that was the goal was to, to, that was like, look, there's loads of two and three and four bedrooms that each person could pay a grand for and get, but there are not a lot of one bedrooms that people can, afford by themselves so let's figure out how mm -hmm. we can take up like you know pair all these people up yeah <clears throat> what about uh was it just in san francisco you said well eventually the app opened up to san francisco boston new york chicago and la 
Cool. Why didn't Why didn't you guys expand into those areas at the time? Just saw enough. Because we didn't have any money. Or, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, partially because I'm an idiot and I didn't know what I was doing. Mostly, well, I would say mostly because I was an idiot and I was young and didn't know anything. Partially because we didn't have any money. All right. Like, well, uh, we, but we could have young. We, we, yeah, we could have got money, but yeah, we just didn't pull it off. Yeah, we we're just being stupid. Yeah, that's same with me with my businesses I'm running. But uh, I wanted to ask you, what's the best lesson you've learned from one of your business failures that's helped you be as successful as you are today in the hustle through one of those three companies that we've talked about? Hmm. Um, I think that uh, the thing that I'm experiencing now is the joy of delegation. So how to delegate successfully. Um, I, I don't think I've always, I, I've not always done de- delegating really well. And I think that that's incredibly important. Um, in terms of uh, learning, uh, well, learning through failure, like I, uh, valuing, like self, like understanding the worth that you can create. Like I have never had a job at a big company and like I would be working on, I w- I've always like worked on little side projects and I would charge like not a lot, like, I would think, man, I could sell this for like $10 a month. And then I see like, oh, wait a minute. At big companies, they've got a couple things going on. The first thing is like the amount of money that you charge, it should relate to the value that you solve, like the value of the problem that you're solving for that company. So, for example, um, if you just create one little tiny widget, but that solves a huge problem, even though that widget maybe didn't cost you a lot of money, don't be afraid to charge loads of money based off of the value that it provides. And, and I did, that took me forever to learn because I always thought as an entrepreneur, a small business owner, I'm like, man, I would never pay like a grand a month for this type of thing because I don't have that money. And that's a huge deal. But, then I, then, but that's not how most companies think. And they shouldn't think that way. Um, and that, the second thing is that most companies are completely dysfunctional and screwed up and even if they wanted to, they couldn't organize their people around like building this new thing. So they'd be much rather, they'd much rather just pay a lot of money if I've already built it and I can just make it easy for them. Do you know what I mean? And I never, yep. I, it took me until like recently to understand that that's how it works. Yeah. They have, it seems like one problem or one thing we focus on with our businesses is moving fast in our business and being able to pivot every day. And in those big corporate, jobs with all the board members and moving up the ranks and everything, they're, uh, they don't have the opportunity to pivot as fast or move as fast as us. So Yeah, like, even, uh, like even if they wanted to. Like, we're seeing this with media companies. Like, every media company that's, like, a really big media company, they're, they're failing to pivot to, like, subscriptions or they're failing to, failing to pivot away from advertising only. And a lot of them, even though they may make uh, billions of dollars right now, but it's slowly dwindling. And they're not, I, don't, I think they're all too big to move fast enough to pivot to do something else. And we're seeing that right now. And people have, uh, I've been able to see inside these companies, and it's like, man, having a big company means you're just going to move really slow. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, yeah, we see that in ag too a lot. Um, we're definitely starting to see it now with all these startups and the technology coming into agriculture. Some of the bigger companies are just slower to the ball with the evolving technology because the time they hear about it and then their people get into researching it and it's got to get cleared and so on and so forth. It's uh just seems to be a process yeah. while the startups just It is a it. process. And you know what the process that you and your father or, or what I would have, if I had a good idea, the process would be, well, I'm just going to do it. Or like, it's like, like when I think of like a cool business idea, I'm, it's like, I'm just not, I'm not going to like go and do a ton of like too much research. I'm not going to talk to that many people other than the people who would potentially buy it. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it. And tomorrow it's going to exist. And that type mm-hmm. of speed, it's just, you, you just can't do that at a big company or most cannot. Yeah, and that's I've seen that on my end too, as I've gotten into business and my just like this podcast, my dad was just like, just do it, just get on one and figure it out. Here I am doing right. interviews and, with you, and you just, and you just you just freaking did it. Like there's no like yeah. committee. I had no training, nothing, and we're starting to do. Uh, some of the other guys in the office are wanting to do podcasts on here too, and they're like wanting training, and I'm like, honestly, just 
get on a call and figure it out. That's, yeah, and big companies just don't roll like that. Oh, no, they, they they would have to go to committee and vote. I'd have to do interviews, and it'd be crazy. But Right, and I think but, that that's uh, like, that that's like a huge advantage to any small business. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's transition a little bit out of your career and uh, a little bit more in from a personal perspective. What makes Sam tick? Um, from what you told me, seems like you love motorcycles. Can you tell me about some motorcycles you've owned or done yeah, some so parts in what, your place? You said. Yeah. So the que- the question is, what makes me tick? Uh, I I think it, it's competition and adventure and with adventure I, I i like motorcycles so i own right now i only own two or three i've got a triumph bonneville a klr 650 and then i have a 1972 uh yamaha xs 650 but that's parked in my office and i don't drive that so yeah i, I like to collect motorcycles i've owned dozens and dozens of motorcycles um i learned that through mike wolf the american pickers guys um so I've always been into that. Um, uh, in terms of what makes me tick, it's really – I just like competing. I love trying to win. I think that making money isn't really, like, particularly interesting to me, but seeing where I am today and trying to double or triple that the next year is really what I uh, – uh, what motivates me more than anything. Do you like do you like competing with other people or just like competing with yourself? Um, both. Like it's kind of like like you were a football player, right? Yeah. So you must have lifted weight. It's like could like if you ever wanted to try to bench three hundred pounds, it's like well, why did I come up with that number three hundred pounds? It's like I I I created that goal because very few people on the team can do that, so I'm gonna try and make that my goal. And then you hit three hundred pounds, and you're like. I'm not a, it's not like you're a different person. It's like it's all you're all the same, but how do I get to three fifty? It's like, well why do I want to do three fifty? Well, because it's a it's a it's a increase in the three hundred that you did previously, but also no one on your team has done that. Let's try three fifty. And that and that's mm-hmm. that's what motivates me. So it's a combination of, of competing with my peers but also with myself. Um yeah, I, I really just I'm fascinated with just the idea of just trying to win. Yeah, I hear you there. And it gets to the point you gotta kinda gotta take it personal and I just uh the last podcast I did was with uh a guy who played in the NFL. Um or he didn't play in the NFL, he played at Northwestern D end. And he was actually projected like top ten in the draft and he ended up hurting himself and couldn't end up playing football anymore kind of was depressed in a way and didn't really know what to do with his life because his life was revolved around football and then got into the business world and um, started working and realized how much he loved to compete. And now he, I think he started four or five companies now that have grown over, that have, he sold over a million bucks. So pretty crazy what competition actually does to a person. Yeah. I, I think it's fun. Like, just like, um, saying to yourself, like, um, this is, like, the vision that I have for my life, and how do I compete with myself to make that a reality? I think that's incredibly exciting. For sure. What about, um, what about travel? Don't you travel quite a bit? What are the, what are some of the best places? I travel for work. Um, I travel, like, I go out of the country maybe three or four or five times a year. Um, like, my thing with travel is, I, 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 so I've done, I've ridden my motorcycle across the country a couple of times. I've, um, I've been to most continents. I lived in Australia for a little while. My thing about travel is I actually don't like it as, as much as a lot of people like it. I think I, but what I do love to do is I love America. I love seeing like the different cultures in America. Like I, I, I have, I, if I had a bet, I would say you've been to a lot of different countries, um, and been abroad a bunch. Uh, and I think that that's wonderful, but like, dude, America is so freaking big. We have 350 million people, uh, in terms of like the geography, we have to be the only country in the world that has every type of geography and climate and ecosystem. And so I love exploring America. I love American history. So like, I love going to all the national parks and seeing, uh, the history. I like reading biographies of 
like titans of industry and then going to New York and I like seeing like how they like where they lived and how they did things. I like going to Boston and seeing like how the country was for, or Philadelphia and Boston and seeing how the country was formed. Um, I like going to, to the South and seeing where like rock and roll and blues originated. I freaking love uh, exploring America and all the cultures and all the types of geography. I'm going to Hawaii in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I travel. I, what I usually do is I travel mostly for work, but I figure out how to like, like make it. So I have like a Saturday or a Sunday in that city and I get to explore. Um, mm-hmm. I love, uh, I, yeah, I love just traveling the like our country, America more so than, than abroad, just because there's so much here and to see. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, I think my I've... dream, well, maybe I'll sell this company and buy an Airstream trailer and just like <laughs> see every, every state. Yeah, I have. Uh, I've only been to Canada and Mexico outside of the U.S. I haven't really traveled too much outside of the U.S. We're actually. I'm shocked. Uh, I, I would have thought that you got you would have been everywhere. No, my parents really haven't. I probably I've been to a lot of the states. I mean, I think we're two or three away from being from all the states, but we don't do much traveling out of the country. Our theory is kind of we, there's people out there dying to get to the United States, so why would we leave? But um out there risking their lives to get the freedom we have. But we're actually heading over to Europe. The whole fam's heading over to Europe uh, next year. My sister's studying abroad in Italy. She'll be over there six months. My dad's, my mom and dad are doing three months, and I'm coming up on the tail end of things for the last three weeks. And Where? Try to bang. Um, my parents are doing everything. They're starting in Ireland and, Working, we're ending in Greece, or they're ending in Greece, but I'm going to try to start in Paris, work my way down to Greece, and meet them. So, yeah, well, yeah, that would be a hell of a time. I think, I think Europe's amazing. Um, I, I, I want to go to Kenya and see, uh, uh, like the Rift Valley and like where like the world started, and I want to see like the runners. So I, I enjoy going abroad. I just think, uh. Um, I just think America's geography is just like the best. Like, the, and the, our history is really interesting to me. So I just love exploring that. And, and I agree. Like, so many people want to freaking come here. Like, let's explore it because we have that advantage. Um, mm-hmm. My wife is 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 from uh, an immigrant family, and uh, they like take advantage of it all the time. They love seeing different parts of the country, and and I uh, I like doing all, that a lot as well. Yeah, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about your wife. You just got married a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, so like I said, I'm a fan of history and I'm a fan of um, like biographies of like titans of industry. And so I got married at Carnegie Hall because Andrew Carnegie was one of my favorite biographies to read about. So I got married at Carnegie Hall um, last week. Sarah, my wife, she's um, her family. Her family's from Haiti. They came here um, at age. 18 not speaking any english and just kind of worked their way up and uh now they 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 made a they own a business in manhattan that kills it it's a storage and moving company and uh uh we uh like i said decided to get married in new york because of all the history there and that's where she's from is manhattan and so uh yeah we made it happen it was a september 7th it was freaking awesome because uh uh, we had my family from Missouri and my friends from Tennessee and my friends from California and then her friends from Manhattan and New York and then also this whole Haitian contingency and we just had a hodgepodge of different types of people and all types of shapes and sizes and colors and religions and it was so cool just to see like it was 150 of us at Carnegie Hall and just everyone was different and, it, and we all had uh, an amazing time. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing time. Um Congrats on the marriage, by the way. Um, yeah, thank you. Let's let's, uh, let's trans- transition a little bit into what you're doing now with the hustle. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the company and what exactly you guys do? Yeah, so the way that we started was I started this thing called HustleCon. So I started the first, my company, or I co-founded Bunk. We had sold it. Then I was looking for something else to do. And so I um, started HustleCon as a way just to kind of like it, it was a conference. It was like TED Talk for Entrepreneurs type of thing. And I only did it to um, meet people. And I 
made it popular by creating an email list where I would write about the speakers that were coming. And after I started the event, or had the idea for the event, and six weeks later the event happened, and I made like 60 grand in profit. I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. I didn't expect that to happen. Let's, I guess, try it again. And we did it again. And this time I made like a quarter of a million in revenue and a lot in profit. And at the time I was like, oh, well, I don't want to run conferences my whole life, but I'm definitely, this whole content thing is kind of cool. What if we built this whole media company, but we started with, con, or, uh, with an email list? And so that's what we did. And so our vision was build up this massive email list of like, <laughs> like-minded people and then create more products and sell those products to the audience. And so The Hustle, which is the name of the company now, it's a daily business news email. It goes out to close to a million and a half people who get all their business news from it each day. Uh, Recently, we launched ancillary products. So we have this new thing called Trends, which was heavily inspired by what you guys did. So it's a weekly email that we charge money for, and it shows different uh, fast-growing opportunities in in startup markets. So like uh, today, we wrote about the... um, um, uh, mental health tech. So like there's a, uh, with mental health care, there's a lot of like moving parts going on and we just explain what are the fastest growing segments in that industry. And so we do that each week and we charge $300 a year for that. Um, and then we still host conferences. And so at the, at this point now, our company is close to, we're like 25 people. Um, it's still pretty small. We've not taken any venture capital funding, but uh, we'll do close to 10 million in revenue this year. And the vision is just, keep doubling like we did like um i mean we've doubled revenue like every year for the last three or four or we're, we're three we're three and a half years old now so we've doubled that revenue for about the last three and a half years each year and so we just want to keep going and just um become a, a really large um independently like i'm not trying to raise vc what uh, a really large privately owned media company that has loads of different products and services for this particular audience um Mm-hmm. And to be honest, like a lot of that was a, was definitely inspired uh, when I met you guys when I when you were telling me about uh, your guys's newsletter. I was like, oh damn, we could do that too. Uh, that's kind of mm-hmm. cool. And so we just <laughs> we just kind of did something similar to what you guys had done. Yeah, and uh, for everyone out there, I'm very familiar with the hustle, and so is my dad. And we both highly recommend the free version and trends. We use both of them to definitely and you stay guys, on top of news. You guys recommended the hustle in your email and we ended up getting like three or four thousand new subscribers really or you like wrote yeah. or you like summarized and you like i forget what you did but you I summarized think we talked an article about meeting you. yeah i think we talked yeah about that's right you. that's what it was everyone listening it's an awesome me and my dad like i said me and my dad use it all the time and these guys are definitely on top of it and we'll read stuff and be like where did these guys even like get this stuff there's nowhere even else out there talking about it but yeah, uh, a few six to a few days, six hours to a few days later, you'll see it start rolling out. But these guys are definitely on top of their stuff, and I definitely suggest following them. And yeah, you guys uh, do a great job. We really like reading it. But um, yeah, so we we have about, like a team. Well, we have like a team of like two or three people doing this each day. You guys have a much smaller team, so it's it's pretty amazing, like what your guys' output is. But yeah, we we uh, we work our butts off to to get good stuff each day. For sure, yeah, good ton- Good content's always key. Um, we're in the space as well, newsletter space, and we, mo- we both know there's tons of competition. It almost seems like anymore that's like the only businesses out there are blogs and social media and newsletters and all that. So one of the main questions I wanted to ask you is, how did the company grow so fast and scale to the level it has? Um, maybe tell me one reason on that because – I'm uh, doing pretty much the same thing how you started with the hustle with Farm Tank, and mine's completely free and just trying to produce good content. So I'm kind of, I mean, I'm scaled to the level we're at now, but I'm trying to now take it to the next level of up in the millions like you are, that scale. So. Yeah, so for us, um, we, I, a few things. One, we were like super focused. So we didn't do a lot of like, like we, we just launched a podcast. We didn't do any video stuff. We barely did any social media stuff because we didn't have any money to lose. We like started hardcore with email and went all in on it. So the second thing was we knew our numbers like crazy. So I knew 
how much revenue I would earn per subscriber. And so because of that, I would know how much I could spend to acquire a customer. And once I found that, A, once I, once I learned that number, and B, once I uh, found channels that would allow me to acquire cu customers for below the number that I would earn per customer, I went all in on it. So for us, like Facebook advertising, like advertising on Facebook to acquire new customers worked really well. Um, advertising on Twitter, advertising on different emails, advertising like in loads of different places, like like it it, it did a, we did we crushed it there, and it was all because you, we just I just knew our numbers like crazy. Were you doing paid advertisements or were you just posting on yeah. your social media page? Paid, because paid. Like, I'll just make up these numbers. Like, it, well, I mean, let's use, uh, I, I don't know too much about uh, Farm Tank. I'm sure I can figure it out. But with, let's say, you and your father's business, you know, if you, let's say that, like, it costs $600 to subscribe and the average person stays with you for two years, that's a $1,200 customer. Um, let's say that it's like, all right, well, so how much are you willing to spend $1,200 to acquire one customer? Well, I guess technically you could spend, up to $1,199. Let's say you want to get paid back in the first three months. That means you're, you're willing to spend about $300 to acquire or $200 mm -hmm. to acquire a customer. So it's like, all right, where can I acquire a customer for $200? Well, I would spend $1,000 on Facebook marketing. I would spend $1,000 on Twitter. I would spend $1,000 on like influencers on Instagram. And you just see like, all right, well, where can I keep just throwing dollars at and I could acquire more customers. So for farm tank, I would imagine it would be a, probably LinkedIn. You could just spend a dollar. You could create an ad and spend a dollar and see if you can get like one, see if you can get one person to subscribe. And if you can, uh, then it's like, all right, well, it costs me a dollar to get one person. How much revenue do I make off one person? Can I make a buck off them in one month with advertising? If yes, then freaking spend the bank. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how we looked at it of like, we just, I just looked at the number. It, to me, it's just like one big math equation. What about uh, another question I wanted to ask you is you guys blew it up pretty big at first. Like you said, you're over a million subscribers now. Uh, how do you guys keep a competitive advantage moving forward and continue to add subscribers and continue to push more and more good content? Or you guys just Is it simply hard work, or do you guys have a strategy behind your competitive advantage? Yeah, I think that, well, there's one competitive advantage that we have that we don't we didn't mean to have, which was building up an audience. It gets like more expensive each year on a lot of the traditional channels, and so we're lucky that we moved when we did. It's kind of like that company, um, uh, Blue Apron. Like mm -hmm. I was talking to the founders, he was like, "There's, there's no way you could ever build a Blue Apron right now." And I was like, "Well, why not?" He goes, "Because when we were advertising on Facebook." We would pay like a penny for we would pay Facebook a penny to get a click to our website, so we could like spend like very few very little money in order to acquire customers. And it's kind of like that with us. Uh, we when we started, it was pretty cheap to uh, to acquire customers. Um, and the second thing is when we first started, we got our first hundred thousand visitors just from me blogging like virally content that would be seen by millions of people and a small percentage of those millions of people would sign up and give us their email. And so that's, one, that's another competitive advantage. And then in terms of strategy, yeah, I mean, the strategy from day one was build up this huge email list because once you have a huge email list, that's a huge competitive strategy because, like, no mm -hmm. one can take that from you. So anytime we yep. send, we'll get six or 700,000 eyeballs on whatever we send because that's our open rate multiplied by our list size. Um, mm-hmm. So like that's that are that is our competitive advantage, which is an email list. Now we're expanding beyond that by creating more stuff. Yeah, for sure. What about uh, let's talk a little bit. I don't want to go over on time. Let's talk a little bit about uh, HustleCon now. Uh, yeah, who, so, who, you guys got that coming up, right? Yeah, so we still host events. So like last year, we had something like twelve or fifteen thousand people speak at our events or uh, attend our events, and we still do that. This year, um, it's happening the first week, uh, the first weekend in December, December second and third. Um, we've had all types of people speak. We've had uh, pretty much, if you can think of a, comp a startup that's like well known, they've probably spoke at our event. So this year, we have the founders of Strava, 
we've got the founders of this company called Hims. Have you heard of Hims? They're the ones who make that like yeah. Viagra re- replacement. Um, yeah. Thrive Market is coming. The folks who started Calm, Calm's this meditation app. It's quite large. Um, the founders of uh, Third Love. It's a large um, bra and underwear company. Um, um, in the past, we've had the founders of uh, WeWork, who just stepped down today. <laughs> we've had the founders of Away Travel, which is pretty huge, Quest Nutrition, Hint Water, um, just all types of cool companies. And, and, yeah, we have that coming up on December 3rd. What's uh, How would you get hooked up with the Calm people? I, I, most everyone, most, pretty much anyone who's ever spoken at our event, it all started with me cold emailing them and then becoming friends with them. So I'm, I'm buddies okay. with Michael, the CEO, and it all started because we just became buddies, uh, uh, like, through a cold email or something. <laughs> cool. San Francisco yeah. has, like, look, San Francisco has so many downsides. Like, it's too expensive. It's pretty dirty. But one of the upsides is, like, all of these people, um, like, live in a two-block radius. So, like, guys, like, everyone I just named, they probably all live, like, in my zip code. So it's really easy oh, to get to know these people. That's crazy. Yeah, my mom was talking to me about that the other day. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. There's a new chain going around called Protein House, and we were eating there the other day. And I'm like, huh, I might try to get a podcast with whoever owns this. And turns out the the girl who owns it, and she was a big bodybuilder and, like, first Brazilian uh, person to win a U.S. competition in bodybuilding and used to be in Playboy. And I think I'm about to do a podcast with her. I was like, how would you, like, get hooked up with her? I'm like, I just shot her an email and she said she was interested so that's awesome yeah it's really easy dude if you wanted to you could email jeff bezos right now jeff at amazon.com and if you email him enough times he'll answer like cold email cold emailing is is freaking awesome cool yeah i'll definitely try it out um last question on the hustle uh where do you see the hustle in the next three to five years i'm still I'm definitely still learning about like what we can do. Um, but for us, I, I would like to develop this huge subscription audience uh, for trends and try to hit um, hundred million in revenue by 2025. And then I want us to be able to use the profits that we earn and invest in other companies and start businesses and use our, our email list as a way to get the word out about those companies. Um, yeah, that's definitely smart and, something we're trying to do on our end as well so uh before yeah, we wrap things totally up work. tell me tell me a little bit about this anti-nba club you're the owner of <laughs> that's how i met a lot of people was i when i was just moved here i didn't when i had first moved here i met all these people and they all went to like stanford and harvard and all this like these like amazingly successful schools and i was like well i don't have that i, I want that i want that network and so I created the Anti-MBA, um, which was basically just a weekly book club. And we would read a book a week or a book a month, and each week we would talk to discuss the book. And then I would have guest speakers come in as like a lecturer. So it's like I was getting the education as well as the network through this weekly book club. And then I also started blogging about the book club and like things I was learning about the book. And uh, that's what the Anti-MBA was. And it was awesome. It's how I've met a lot of the people who I know. And I, I think one of the one of the advantages I bring to businesses is I just have this like really deep network and it really all started because of that. Huh. Who are some of the people you met to the club? Um, I'd have to think, let's see. Uh, um, Tim, Tim Ferriss, you know, Tim Ferriss, who Tim Ferriss is. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, he, I, I met him kind of tangentially through that. Like, I met someone at the book club who knew him, and then through that, I became friends with him. I met, uh, like, three of the six groomsmen in my wedding came from the book club. Uh, uh, Founders of of pretty big companies and loads of different investors, like, I met through there. Um, One time we were reading this book on... uh, on negotiation, and I convinced this guy who's in the CIA who negotiated with terrorists to come and talk. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I've met so many people, like literally most of my best friends. Cool. Yeah, I need it. I'm uh, in the works now of starting 
a young entrepreneurs um, club torpa sort of thing in Kansas City just to uh, meet like-minded people in the community and we're trying to keep it under 35 years old and just uh, trying to help business owners, younger business owners, learn not fall into those holes like you said earlier and try to avoid them and really scale their businesses to the next level. So that's one thing I'm working on at the moment. But uh, Yeah, I, like I would say do a, book, do a book club. Here, here's, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to look into the future and tell you how it's going to work. Ready? You're going to do a book club. Yeah. Okay. No one is going to read the book except you, but the book selection that you, or the books that you select will weed out certain types of people. And that, that's, so select books where you're like, well, I want to meet other people who are interested in this. And that's how it's going to work. You're rarely going to talk about books because no one but you is going to read it. And, uh, but it's totally going to be awesome. Yeah, if I end up doing it, my dad might send you a few gifts. You might find a few gifts in the mail because he's always harping on me about reading more and more books. He's a big reader of books, so do it, Let's, man. Uh, they say you're the they say you're the average of the five people you hang out with um, most. Well, I think that's kind of the thing with reading. Yeah, um, I hear you. Uh, you, if you read about someone a lot, you kind of like becoming uh, similar to them. Yeah. Well, so. Uh, Let's end with a little bit of fun. A few more questions. Can you finish this sentence for me? Sam Parr is... Uh, Sam Parr is an animal. <laughs> there you go. Can you expand <laughs> on that a little? Um, from Compared a young age, my, my parents... Well, my parents always called me an animal because... Uh, I like to... Whenever I get interested in something, I go all in, but I'm also really rough on stuff, and I'm I'm kind of rough around the edges still a little bit. So they always call me an animal because they always, they always, whenever I work on a business, I like to kind of be reckless and go all in. But even if I just go and eat something in the kitchen, they can always tell that I'm the one who went through there. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the more interesting answers I've had. I get a wide variety of stuff on that. Like I'll get tired or hungry or some I'm an like animal, I think. Some people like to get fancy on it and, say some bull that I'm not even sure what they're saying, but um, <laughs> no, I'm an animal. So that, that's what I am. <laughs> that's how I roll too. Um, yeah. Before we uh, wrap this deal up and call it a day, I'd just love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on Sam Parr. Mm. Uh, someone once told me this something and I've always thought it to be true, which is, if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're probably right. I think that uh, uh, creating a lifestyle that you want, whether it's you want to be rich or you want to just not work a lot and be with your family or you just want to have a cool nine-to-five and spend your weekends doing certain things, like pretty much most anything that you want, um, is, you can definitely get it. If that's truly what you want, you just kind of have to get it, go after it and grab it. And I, and I think that the majority of people totally undervalue their own effort and what they're capable of. And when someone told me that at a young age, it always resonated with me. I, I think about it all the time. Yeah. And I, uh, I agree. My dad always likes to put it on a scale on like school, like with work. And he'll say, well, uh, are you giving it a hundred percent effort? Could you give more? And there's always room to give more. So if you actually want it, I mean, it's right out there. Just got to go take it. To me, life's not a matter of uh, can you or can you not. It's just what 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 path do you want to take. For sure. And um, I think that's it for our Farm Tank session today. I uh, appreciate you being on the show and taking the time to do this with me. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot. I think I'll uh, be out at HustleCon this year. I'm planning on buying some tickets. So, um Yo, well, no, no need to. I'll, I'll, no, I got you. I'll send you something. Okay, cool. And we're doing a show yeah, this year no. as well. We, uh, just, we plan need on, farm con. just plan on coming. I'll handle the ticket. Okay, cool. And uh, I'll send you some stuff on our show. It's called FarmCon. We changed the name. So it's uh, we got some pretty cool speakers. I'll send you over some stuff too. And you're more than welcome to come as well. And maybe we can just trade tickets. So Let's do it. I'm in. All righty. So. I guess that's Thanks it. Let's stay me. in touch. Yeah, 
thanks for being on and let's stay in touch and if you ever need anything let us know and we happy to help you out all right man thank you and uh, i appreciate uh, you having me and i'll talk to you soon all right see you buddy bye